Hey, it's episode number three of How I Got This Gig. In this episode, I speak with video editor extraordinaire Jason Chan about how he became an editor and then went on to become one of the industry's first predators. Do you know what a predator is? Well, stick around and you'll find out. Hello and welcome to How I Got This Gig, a podcast about how people got their start in media. Whether it be television, movies, newspapers, internet, we're going to be exploring all kinds of jobs, whether they're creative or technical. And the reason I thought this might be a good idea for a podcast is because when I first decided that I wanted to get into the media business, there was no clear path. You know, I didn't quite know what to do. Do I go to film school? Do I try to join the union? Do I just go get a job? What's going to be the best route to take? And although my parents supported my decision to work in television, they felt powerless because breaking into the industry seemed like this big, impossible dream. Well, the truth is, it kind of is. But we're going to change all that right here with this podcast as we pull back the curtain and shine a spotlight on probably 101 ways to get into the business. And today, we're speaking with Jason Chan. Jason started as an editor and has gone on to become a producer and a creative director. But I want to focus on his experience as an editor because I think he has some really great insights for many of you out there who might be interested in becoming an editor. And as I teased off the top, he's going to talk about how the TV industry has changed with the introduction of Predators. So stick around for that. As always, this podcast is brought to you by Videotwins.com, where you can find tips, tricks, and resources to help you improve the quality of your video productions. And you know what happens when you improve the quality of your video productions? You get to charge more money. Yeah. Hey, this is a tough business, so any edge you can get on your competition is really going to help you in your bottom line. So if you're just a budding filmmaker, hobbyist, and you want to try to make some money at it, we've definitely got some tips and resources for you. But if you are an industry pro and you're wanting to move, maybe you're in a full-time job and you're wanting to go out on your own or start a production company, hey, we've been through it all. We've started production companies And we know a thing or two because of the mistakes we've made. And we're also offering help with that. So again, videotwins.com. Berman and I are there to answer all your questions. Okay, we're going to be talking to Jason Chan today about being a video editor in just a few minutes. But I thought I'd share my thoughts uh, because I have a bit of a background in video editing. And I must say that video editing has been crucial to my success as a director. There are two skills that I that I have developed that I think have helped me dramatically in my career in media. The first one is writing, or my ability to fight through the battles of which is the struggle of writing. You know, writing is not easy. It's not easy for anyone. But if you can write, you can create your own opportunities. You're not waiting for someone else with a concept or an idea or a script and waiting for them to bring you on. You're creating your own opportunities. You've got the script. You've got it. If you want to be a director but you don't write, it will probably take quite a while for you to catch a break. Um, 
you know, as you see, those even in movies, you know, the Paul Thomas Andersons, the Quentin Tarantinos, a lot of the auteurs, you know, they write. But I, I think it's really key for you at any level, even if you're doing corporate videos or, or commercials, that you have ideas of your own and you can develop them and you can put them down on paper so that they can be communicated with other people. And that is just a great way for opportunities to come up. You know, you're not waiting for anybody else. You're making your own opportunities. And in this business, that is key. That is so key because everybody else is looking out for themselves and you should be too. And they're always looking out for writers. Now, the ironic thing is writers are probably treated the worst in the industry. And I do not know why that is. I think because secretly those that can't write but have power resent those that can write. But in my mind, you know, writers should be uh, more celebrated than directors. But that's a whole other dis discussion and a whole other uh, episode. Uh, in the meantime, okay, so writing has been big for me because I've been able to create my own opportunities by being able to write. But number two, what's helped me as a director and on set and, and getting things to work in my storytelling has been because I started out as an editor. And when I was in film school, I was pretty lucky because we did have a Steenbeck, so I did get to do some flatbed editing there with real film where you really touch it and you make those physical cuts. But then I also got to work on an Avid. It was the first Avid ever, I think. And uh, it wasn't even really uh, true digital because you would ingest the tape, the video, into the computer, but it would be very low res. And then on this timeline, you would make your edit and do your transitions, but then it would the computer would spew out a EDL, an edit decision list, and then you would take that floppy disk and you would go over to another uh, system that ran like tape, the tape machines together. You'd still have physical tape machines, but the computer did it all and made it all work, and then that's how it happened. Uh, of course, the technology moved very quickly after that, and I was able to kind of ride that wave because I understood what was happening um, I, I could conceptualize this non-linear digital editing, and so I found lots of work opportunities um, to just jump in there and work on some of these early platforms like Media 100 and the early Premiere, and I think Speed Razor was another one, uh, all kinds of, of, of programs. So I became quite proficient at non-linear editing, and then I took the gig at CNN in Hong Kong where, whoa, blow my mind, they were still using tape decks, tape to tape, beta SP. It was digital, but it was still on tape. So, you know, you're doing your edit, and you were just praying that there weren't going to be any dropouts and ruining anything. And uh, I was like, wow, why are we doing this with technology? But the reason they had to do tape to tape was because at that time, nonlinear editing still wasn't fast enough, if you can believe it. It took time to ingest all the tape, and that was like in real time because you had to play the tape, and if it was 20 minutes on that tape, it took 20 minutes to ingest it. And then after your edit was done, you would have to render, and that could be an hour or two. And there were times where, you know, cameramen and producers were running back to the edit suites, and you had like an hour to crash edit a package that was going to be hot-rolled live into the show, and oh my gosh, nothing was more stressful than that. I do not miss those days. Now, news can seem, hmm, not that creative sometimes. You know, they're, they're cut and dry. They're the facts. You know, you've got your reporter, you've got your interviews, and then you've got your B-roll. Sometimes that changes. They, they add some music, and, and I'm not really for all of that stuff, adding some color grade and stuff, because I think it's like artificially manufacturing drama, and I don't think the news is a place to do that. But that's a whole other discussion in another episode as well. But 
I'll tell you one important thing that I learned, as much as I hated editing, you know, news packages, super rushed, super stressed with like four or five tapes everywhere. One thing I really learned is important is your nat sound, your natural sound. I started editing these news packages and, you know, when they were doing some, I was doing some test ones and I cut the package together two minutes and it's got the sound bites from the interviewees. It's got the stand up from the reporter. It's got B-roll. I've got good sequences. And then my executive producer uh, would say, Ugh, where's your Nat sound? I was like, what do you mean? I don't need Nat sound. I got this. I got the story. I got the script here. It's all in the voiceover. It's all in the sound bites. It's like, no, no, you need the Nat sound. The Nat sound really brings the viewer into the scene. It really sets the mood. And I still think that that is kind of being lost in a lot of uh, video making out there. You know, on the editing side, you know, audio is important. Yes, you want clean interviews or clean dialogue. Yes, you want that music at a good level in your mix. But don't forget the sound that goes with your B-roll. Sometimes we'll recreate that. Even if we don't get good location sound, we will recreate that nat sound, quote unquote, because it is so important. It really can take your production to the next level. So I want to encourage all of you out there to put some extra thought into your nat sound, especially if you're cutting a visual sequence, you know, and, and, and then you don't have to write some script for it. You could think, oh, you know, if, if, if writing is a struggle for you. That's what I, that's how I cheat. You know, I just, I don't want to write something here. I don't want to put any voiceover. I don't want to put anything here. Let me just let the Nat sound tell the story, you know, and I especially love like if it's like cooking or, you know, coffee being made or, you know, a sequence of somebody making something and you hear the machinery and all of that or an athlete, you know, you got the breathing and the, the lace is going and all that. No, I, I love that. I love that stuff. And I just want to stress to everybody out there, you know, don't forget about your Nat sound. If you have any interest in editing, get into it. I mean, it's great because nowadays it's something you can do at home. You can do it on your iPhone, I guess. You can get uh, iMovie on your iPhone. But really, if you want to be a director and you want to improve your directing skills while you're not directing, because nothing will give you more experience and improve your skills like directing, actually doing it, the second best thing is be in the edit room, making these shots cut together, and you'll learn pretty quickly what works and what doesn't. Okay, on to the interview with Jason Chan. This interview is a little bit different because we recorded it outside. And we were originally going to use it as a video interview. So you'll hear me uh, mention B-roll, talking about the B-roll. But there's no B-roll in this because ultimately we ended up going with an audio podcast because we just felt it would be more accessible to people. Now, I've known Jason for a number of years and he is one smart cookie. Not only does he understand the technical aspect of editing but he's also well-versed in the language of cinema, and he understands the craft of great filmmaking. So I know you're going to really enjoy this one. Jason, welcome to the show. Did I, catch you? Did I scare you there? Yeah, coming you scared the, me. Coming out of the B-roll there? You're going to do that again? Oh, okay. Yeah, you totally freaked me out there. <laughs> I know, okay. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Hey, you like my energy? I love it. Isn't that good? It's okay. awesome, yeah. So, uh, thanks for taking the time to be here. Not a problem. Yeah. I know, you know, a lot of people, they want to get into this business. They want to pick it up. Maybe they start off as a hobbyist or mm. something, or some people go to school and all of that. But what I found is working in the industry is that, like, there is no straight path to working in video or television or film production. Right? I agree with you that. 
How did you get into this business? Uh, it was a very uh, jagged path. It's a circuitous path, uh, path that I wouldn't recommend that anyone take. Do you want to elaborate on that? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, should I go? Yeah, start. How, how far back should I go? I like to go just to the cradle and then back it up a bit. Okay, well, I was born in Toronto, <laughs> Canada. Uh, and then I had a fairly normal childhood. Uh, and then uh, went through the school system. Yeah. Was there anything when you were young that was like you liked telling stories or you were drawn to movies or anything? Was there anything uh, like loved that? I loved movies when I was a kid. I loved telling stories via pictures. I drew a lot when I was a child. I, um, I don't know if they necessarily connect, but they probably do in some Jungian or Freudian way. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I always sort of was a visual kid, I would say, um, but I also really like music. I played a lot of music. So I, I guess I was sort of in the arts without being arty, maybe. Um, anyway, so I went through high school doing all that stuff. had pretty good grades, but I decided to uh, go left field and not become an engineer or an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor uh, like uh, everyone else I knew. Uh, and I, I enrolled in film school just out of a whim. And uh, lo and behold, they accepted me and basically uh, gave me a scholarship and, 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 and paid me to go to film school. Now, what film school did you go to? I went to York U. I went to York University, um, they, their production program. Uh, so I did that for four years, uh, specializing on the film side rather than the video side. And this was before the nonlinear revolution, so I actually learned how to cut on film which is sort of ridiculous when you think about it because Avid was invented like the year before I graduated or something like that, right? Uh, so I, I learned to cut on film the old-fashioned way, uh, graduated, realized that no one cuts on film anymore because they didn't really tell me that in school. I think they tell people that in school now. When I was in school, they didn't tell people that. Um, so I took a crash Avid course uh, at Humber College. Uh, it was a couple of weeks. It was maybe like a four-week course or something like that. It was, it was actually really good. This is after you graduated? This is after I graduated. I realized that no one was really hiring film cutters anymore. Uh, and I, I decided to just dive right into the nonlinear world because, you know, I, I do like uh, computers and stuff. I'm not, I'm not afraid of technology. Uh, so I went to Humber. I took a crash course in Avid, um, which was one of the only Avid certified courses in Canada at that time. I'm sure there's a lot now. Uh, right after that, I, uh, I got hired by a small uh, commercial production company as an assistant editor. Okay, let me, let me back up a little bit yeah. here. So, you know, you're in film school and they give you lots of opportunities. You know, you're writing, you're directing, you're yeah. learning about lighting and you're learning about editing. Yeah. So, you know, your choice is kind of coming out. You might be a writer, you might be a director, an editor, mm -hmm. DP. You chose editing, it sounds pretty. You were drawn to that? Yeah, I was drawn to editing. Uh, I first entered... When I first entered uh, school, I thought I would go into uh, cinematography, and I was not too bad in it, but I, uh, I was drawn to editing. I, I, I can't explain why, but I just found that, uh, one, I, I liked the loneliness of the job. I really did. Uh, <laughs> Sitting I liked, in a booth by yourself. Yeah, I actually liked sort of the, the, lone, the lone wolf nature of being an editor getting sort of your direction and taking that direction or ignoring that direction, whatever, but sitting in the room and just working hour and hour and hours and hours and hours crafting something that's, you know, to be honest, when you get your rushes, generally they're just formless 
mush. Depends on the quality of your director, of course. Okay, right? let's talk about what is a rush? What are the rushes? Uh, when you get your raw shoot material. Yeah. Uh, depending on your quality of your director, uh, quite often it's just formless mush, um, to be polite. Uh, sometimes it's brilliant. To, you, know, you know, you get a whole range of things, of course, right, depending right. on who you're working with. But uh, as an editor, it's, it's just great to sort of take this kind of raw material and, and sculpt it into something something interesting that actually makes sense and hopefully is compelling to the viewer. Yeah. I always find editing fascinating because so much of the process you're, you're, in the work you're doing is for later. You'll see the results later. You know, when you're, you, if you're a set designer or a builder, you're building, you'll see them later. You'll see the results later. You right. know? Or if you're directing, the results don't come until later. But the editing is like you, you're at the end of the process and you start to see everything coming together. Well, I think you, you sort of hit it on the head there. Um, you hit the nail on the head, excuse me. Um, the one thing I really liked about editing, and, and it's sort of reflective in perhaps my personality, I'm a bit impatient, is I like the immediacy. I make a cut, I look at the cut, I know if it works or it doesn't work. Or, you know, I, I, I put a scene together, for example, if I'm doing a fictional piece or something like that, I can run it back and I can tell immediately if, if it's working or not. If you're a DOP or whatever, you know, especially now when you're shooting on video, you just kind of like make sure everything is exposed at a certain, you have a certain latitude or whatever in there. You don't really know if it's gonna be amazing until after all the color correction, et cetera, et cetera. But the, as the editor, you can pretty much tell if it's working or not after you hit the button, you know, and you, you immediately review your shot. You know if it's gonna, you know if it's gonna sing or not. Yeah. Um, of course, if you're doing a longer piece, you have to see it a, a few more times and maybe get opinion. But, uh, you know, to make a long story short, I, I do like the immediacy of being an editor and uh, not having to sort of wait around, you know, uh, what's that, what's the, what's the, uh, what's hurry up and wait. Hurry up and wait. Yeah, yeah. it's a big on set saying, Yeah, I right? was never a huge fan of hurry up and wait. I just like, let's do it now and let's look at it ASAP. That's kind of my What's the workflow adage. work like then? Because um, you're not a one-man band, obviously. You're at a level no. where you're part of a team. Right. As From the perspective of an editor, walk me through the workflow on a sort of a short video. Um, from an editor's perspective, I guess, obviously, you know, depending on the scope of, of the project, sometimes the editor is consulted before uh, stuff is even shot. So if there's going to be some specific VFX sequences or something that requires a little extra post-production work, perhaps the director slash or producer, excuse me, the director or producer can consult with the post-production people, be it the editor, be it the VFX people, be it the compositors, whatever it happens to be, on how to shoot something, the best way, the coverage they need, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if, if not, let's say the editor is brought in purely in a post role. Uh, the director would go out with his crew, the producer and the director would go with his crew, shoot whatever. Hopefully there's notes taken and there's a script with notes on it. All that will be given to the editor. The editor will obviously chat with the director to make sure he understands kind of the director's vision and the direction of the piece because it's very easy to manipulate the footage and, and make a piece happy or sad just to make it simple, right? So we want to know sort of the vibe, the tone and feel that the director's going for. We look at the notes, we look at the rushes, and uh, we basically do a first assembly. And uh, I'm just giving you the sort of the, the, the Coles notes, yeah. right? We do, uh, we do a first assembly to make sure the kind of structurally the backbone is there. We're hitting all the beats, the act 
one, two, three, whatever it happens to be is there. Once that's signed off on uh, and the director says this is the direction to go, you do a fine cut. You, you put in all the missing pieces. You get all your emotional beats, etc., etc., uh, and then you know that that will go over pro- revision after revision until the client, director, whoever happens to be the you know, the final say, let's say, is happy with the way the story is shaping. Uh, when it's picture locked, then we can go into color correction mode or online mode. You know where the the picture is is sweetened, so the story is locked. The edits are locked and now you're just working on every shot to make it look as good as possible from sort of an aesthetic point of view. So you can do the color correction, you can do the compositing, you can add your titles, your lower thirds, your supers, that kind of thing. After that, you go into sound mix, mix it up, make it sound great, and then you're off to the races. And in the olden days, in the olden days, there was like a ton of people that did all the work that right. you said. You know, there might be an offline editor or an yeah. assistant editor, then the, the senior editor, mm-hmm. and then there'd be someone for color grading, and then there'd be somebody for sound mixing. What's it like today? <clears throat> it's it's same, same, but different. Uh, a lot of rules have been compressed into one. So maybe, for example, you'd have an offline editor, an online editor. A lot of places, uh, they're one and the same. So the person who does the offline cuts will also do the color correction and you know, the rotoscoping or the compositing or the titles. It could all be handled by one sort of post-production specialist, right? Uh, They might actually do the sound mix in suite. So if you're editing on Premiere, let's say, or FCPX or whatever, they might actually do the final sound mix there or they might um, export into another tool, let's say Audacity or Ableton or even Pro Tools and just do it there. Or you could go to a sound specialist who just specializes in audio. It really depends on the scale of the project, who you're working for, and how you work yourself. So I know a lot of people who are one-man bands or one-person bands, men or women, doesn't matter. Uh, But I also have worked in workflows where it goes through every sort of step in in sort of, you know, military precision. It really depends on the scope, budget, who you're working for, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there's any difference in the results? Um, To get a better spot? One way versus the other? That's, 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 that's not a straight, I can't give a straightforward answer. At the end of the day, it really depends on the level of professionalism of your people. Whether you're, it's a one person band who's incredible at everything, or you have sort of the step by step and you have the best in the business all the way. So it, it, honestly, from, from a, a working perspective, there's no difference. It just comes down to the talent of the people doing it. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yep. No, absolutely. Technology's played a huge role. Absolutely. You know, when I watch some of these classic films, you know, not too long ago, I don't want to date myself, but from the 70s and 80s, and think, man, this stuff was all cut on film. Like, I don't even know if our viewers, like, can envision what it was like to do effects and yep. cuts with actual physical film. I and miss like, those days. There's no Apple Z, you know? Yep. Every uh, cut counts you can't make a mistake or else you're digging through the trash bin to find that frame you shouldn't have cut out that you cut out and I, I sort of miss those days of precision absolute precision yeah what does that mean in terms of the craft then mm. I mean they're 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 still great editors they're still great the, the great thing about this this sort of technological revolution for lack of a better term is that it's 
democratized post-production. Anyone who has a couple bucks in their pocket can be an editor, which is great because there's a lot of people who have the potential and have the skill, but just didn't have the, the in to become, an, to become an editor in the old-fashioned system, right? You know, their, their, bro their cousin's brother's uncle wasn't working for a studio that could get them in as, a, as an apprentice or something like that, right? Um, so that's opened the doors for everybody to potentially be a great editor. But that's also, that's also opened up to the doors for everyone to just hack away at everything. Uh, so, I mean, there's good and bads for everything, you know what I mean? So, you know, at the end of the day, the, the strong survive. Yeah. And, and, and you know, Darwinism. <laughs> it continues. <laughs> takes its toll. Yeah. yeah. And the people who are great will, will shine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I believe that as well. Okay, with your editor hat on, how do you feel about the term fix it in post? Because, uh... <laughs> you know, it's something that's thrown around on set an awful lot. And yeah. when, we, when, when you're on set and you hit a wall, you're running out of time, you're running out of light, you're running out of whatever, or you don't know how to, what decision, you just say, fix it in post and we'll deal with it then. But that must put, a, push a, put an awful lot of pressure on the guy, back at, that lone wolf back in the booth there. Yeah, and, and you know what? I say fix it in post a lot. But when I say fix it in post, I actually know it can be fixed in post. Yeah. The problem is when someone says fix it in post, they have no idea what can be fixed in post. Uh, one story uh, I can tell you is, uh, yes, one, one story I can tell you, it's an incredible story. You actually. can change the names to protect I, I will say no names, but there was a producer who had shot something. I can't even remember what it was, but it was basically, you know, let's say it was a shot of a doorway. You know, a simple shot of a doorway. This producer went into into edit and said, "Can we make the shot wider?" You can't make the <laughs> shot wider because it's been shot. You can't pull out and suddenly new stuff will appear. Yeah. So that's that's you know that that illustrates perfectly the fix it in post mentality where you actually don't understand post at right. all. Right. Except for probably technology and money. Yes, CG um, uh, could probably recreate the wall around. Theoretically, yeah, yeah. you could <laughs> fix that post by rebuilding the entire house around it. But your it. point is, you've been asked some pretty incredibly stupid asks. It, incredibly ridiculous asks, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it, at some point you just kind of get it because um, not everybody understands the post uh, process and, you know, everyone needs to be educated the first time. But but it is comforting to know on set that so much can be done in post. A lot can be done in post. Um, it just again, it really de depends on the money you're willing to spend. Yeah. In post. So for example, that ridiculous example uh, of of the, the doorway, the, the shot could the, the shot, shot be wider. The, the shot could have been wider. We could have rebuilt the entire house, but that would have probably been the entire budget of the whole shoot just yeah. to fix that one shot when they could have just zoomed out a bit on, on, on set. So saying that then, are there any tips or tricks or things that people can keep in mind when yeah. they're filming uh, that, uh, you know, that they can get some help with in post or just, uh, instead of just yelling, fix it in post, that, you know, things that they can look out for? Uh, you know what? Uh, one thing I really believe in, and I think I'm quoting, I'm actually quoting Michael Bay, but I'm sure he stole it from somebody else. But he always says, shoot for the edit. 
and I'm a firm believer of shooting for the edit, meaning shoot knowing how you're gonna use the shot. Now that's so interesting because to me, the way he shoots, it's like he's overshooting. He's got steady cams going, he's got 20 cameras, and it's like, how do you direct that way to shoot for the edit when you are just massively overshooting everything? That's why it surprised me that this quote came from Michael Bay. I expected this quote to come from like Hitchcock, who right. shot for the edit. He never shot anything extra because he didn't want the studios interfering with his edit because he would just say, I don't have that shot. Right. I only shot exactly what I, need, I needed. I storyboarded it, you approved the storyboards, that's what I shot, yes. that's where we go. Because and if you give options, then you get in. Exactly, and Hitchcock was notoriously specific with his storyboards. And he loved the editing process, and he actually didn't enjoy the production process. He said the production process, and I'm just, it's not an exact quote, but he thought it was just a means to an end. He was just shooting because he needed to shoot because it happened to be a movie. Right. But he loved making it in the edit in the editing suite. Seemed to me he liked it on the page. Yes. And then he liked it on the editing. Yes. That's I kind of relate to that myself. Yeah. Because being on set, man, that can it's that hurry up and wait. It can be a drag. Yeah. It's like yeah, very time consuming and that. You exactly. Stay focused. There's no immediacy. All the results you're gonna see later. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So back to editing, and then I want to move on to the next topic. But if you got, can you give us three general editing tips? that um, you think would help people make better, better videos? Editing tips. Oh, editing tips. Uh, my three things are the same thing. Organization, organization, organization. If you're not organized in your edit, it's, it's gonna be, it's an uphill battle, basically. Uh, label all your clips, label all your bins, know where everything is, just be organized. Uh, coming from a film editor background, where you're physically hanging strips of film on the wall in, a, in, a, in, in an organized manner that obviously I created or whatever. If I lose a shot, I physically lost a shot and I don't know where it is and a dog could have run off with it, I don't know. So I say organization is 50%, if not more, 50% if not more of the, of the battle in editing is organization and knowing where everything is and cataloging where everything you need is. Because if, if you're, Especially on a longer shoot, if you're shooting, you know, a reality show, let's say, where you've got eight cameras running at once, you have to know where everything is. And hopefully, you know, either yourself or if you're, you, have the, you have the luxury of having assistance to sort of catalog stuff for you, that there's a system in place that you've created or whatever you've inherited where you can find everything you need. And, that's my three tips, is that one word, is organization times three. Perfect, that's great. So you graduated from film school, York University. You took the AVID editing intensive course. I assume you were certified then? That's correct, yeah. Did you go right to work? Uh, sort of. I, I was hired as an assistant editor at a small commercial production house. Uh, so I would you know, do night shifts, I'd digitize, I would um, do assemblies, stuff like that. Uh, so the AVID skills definitely, definitely helped because at that point in history, uh, there weren't a lot of certified AVID operators. And uh, AVID was kind of the only nonlinear platform, kind of, it at was, that time. It was the big fish the big at one, that point. Yeah. It was like that and Lightworks. Yeah, Media 100. Media 100, but AVID was definitely the industry standard at that time. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of certified uh, AVID people at that point. So just being certified was already, you know, a foot in the door in a lot of places. Sure. Because, I mean, you, you say your first gig, you got paid? First gig, I got paid, yeah. yeah Not a lot, that's... but I got paid. I got that paid. says something right yeah. there, yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so I, I worked as an assistant editor for a while, uh, and that was that was cool. Um, I guess the break came when the main editor of the company decided to quit. Uh, he gave his two weeks notice, and you know, basically it was trial by fire at that time because they 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 said, "Hey, this kid knows how to use the machine." <laughs> Let's just throw them in the booth. Let's sure. just throw them in the room. Let's see what happens. And that's exactly what happened. I was just thrown into the fire, which I think is the best way of learning is by just being thrown in the trenches and not being coddled. So I had about a week of training. Yeah. Uh, so I knew how everything worked from a workflow perspective. Pushing the buttons. Pushing the buttons, plugging in the patch bay, yeah, yeah. Underscan, un understanding the Tascam 88. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the audio recording device that physically used tapes and had eight tracks. Um, so I was just thrown into that environment. Uh, then, you know, within a few days, I had agencies and clients sitting behind me barking out orders. Uh, as I as I offline and online the commercials. Wow. So there's no sort of room to contemplate life decisions or whatever. I just did it. And I think that's honestly the best way to do things is don't think about it. Just do it and see what happens. Sink or yeah. swim. Sink or swim. That's uh, it. And that's, that's what life should be about. Sink or swim. Yeah, because yeah. I mean at this point, you know, you were really green, right? You I had was very your green. You had your education and then you got the, you, you learned what buttons, but yeah. Like we've talked, there's a craft to this. There's a craft to this. Beats, I, pacing, all of that, and all of a sudden... Absolutely, and then in the commercial world, there's also, you know, beyond that, there's a lot of politics with how you deal with clients, how you deal with talent, and stuff like that. And I was just some kid right out of school and was just, you know, I had the fire in my belly, and I just did it. And I, I developed my own style of working that was probably not what a lot of other people are used to, uh, and I had a way of dealing with clients that I think they appreciated because I, I was very straightforward and I told them the truth and I tried to meet their deadlines. But I, 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 I think I think people appreciate when you don't lie to them or jerk them around or make them feel good. Yeah. You know, if you tell them the truth and you work with them, as well as for them, obviously. But if you work with them, I think they appreciate you more. Yeah. You know, you're a partner with them rather than just kind of being like, anything you say, sir. Yeah, sometimes they don't take that you're looking out for them. Yeah. But then after a while, I think they get it and they really appreciate yeah. it. You yeah. may at first be like, well, this guy's resisting or he's pushing back yeah. or whatever. But it's like, well, wait a minute. It's in my best interest here. Absolutely. So that's good. Yeah. Great. So then you just, what, what did you do there? Did you just settle in and be an editor for the rest of your life? Uh, well, um, I worked in the commercial production house for about... Uh, three-ish years or so um, and then after that I got a break uh, one of the directors I worked for uh, who was making who was shooting a commercial he ended up directing a TV series um, for kids uh, that is long gone and forgotten so I won't mention it but he was uh, working I can probably find it online you could probably find it online but he was uh, he was working for a broadcast company um, and the editor that he was working with at that time wasn't working out for him uh, with the style that he wanted, with kind of the, just the work pace that he was used to because he came from the commercial world. He wanted to bring that to the television series. And, and as you know, TV series and the commercial series work and commercial work 
two different kind of paces. Yeah. He was used to the commercial pace. He wanted that style of editor. So he asked me to join his team. So I did the series. Loved working with him. Everyone loved working with me, you know, thank goodness or whatever. Um, and then that pretty much brought me into the TV series world or working for television broadcasters. So I left the commercial world behind, the hectic, crazy client agency world, which uh, was, it's a, it's a hard world because the hours are long and it, it's, it's quite grueling and, and very demanding. And I went into the broadcast world, which is, which is different. The pacing is different. Um, so I, I, I worked on TV series and all that kind of stuff for a major broadcaster for, for You could for say who it is. I won't. You won't? No. Well, they'll see it on the B-roll. They, they can, <laughs> but they won't know <laughs> So, so you like that adjustment then? Mm -hmm. Uh, the, the, the life and, and the work, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. It just, uh, was less, uh, less psychologically taxing. Yeah. And working in the commercial industry. Because commercial industry is it's it's full on. The pressure's there. The pressure is very much there. Very yeah. much there. When you've got, you know, when you're the one editor working on a project and you've got eight agency people, you've got the copywriter, the creative director, the director, the art director, and then a bunch of people from their clients. So if they're working for whatever, they're selling, you know, client X, IKEA whatever yeah then they've got people from Ikea or, or whoever their client is in the room as well making and everyone has an opinion a lot and of chefs in the kitchen a lot of chefs in the kitchen <laughs> how do you manage that you uh, you just you just do <laughs> you know there, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways of doing it uh, and everyone has a different way I had my own have you got a trick because I got a trick I would share you share your trick I'll share my okay. trick so when I was working for commercials and I'd have to send a rough cut because I was an editor director, right? Mm -hmm. So and I did quite a bit of editing. I would always leave one glaring obvious mistake in the yes. cut so that their attention was drawn there and they yes. would change that and not fiddle with too many other things. Yes, yes. That's, uh, I think I, I was taught that as the blue boat theory. <laughs> what they right? call that? Yeah, yeah, you make a painting and just throw a blue boat in there because they'll ask you to remove the blue boat and they'll forget about everything And you else. get what you want. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a great trick and that's, that's, one, of my, that's one of my tricks as well. Another trick is to just, as you're an editor, um, turn off the client monitor and then turn it on when you, when you, when you want to yeah. see them. So they're not seeing every, every little thing move and worrying about everything. Because it's tough because they're sitting right over your shoulder. Exactly. And sometimes, yeah. you know, you've got to do a few things yeah. before you get that result yeah. and everything. And yeah, I can see that. So if, if there's one recommendation, if you're working with uh, clients, is have a monitor specifically for them to look at as opposed to them perched over your shoulder looking at your screen therefore you can control exactly what they see on the client monitor so you can turn the monitor off and turn it on only when it's ready for them to see and you don't want them to see the journey to the destination just show them the destination right because when they see the journey they're gonna they're gonna hum and haw over everything it's messy maybe it is like, yeah yeah because yeah. yeah. everyone works differently yeah some people might take five steps to get the conclusion. Some people might take two steps to get the conclusion. Don't show them those steps, just show them the conclusion. And then go from there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's sort of my trick. That's a cleaned up version of my trick. <laughs> my actual trick is, is, a, is a lot dirtier. <laughs> okay, well, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. So working at a broadcaster now, so yeah. you, you haven't really been freelance at all during this point. You've been hired full time basically for a production yeah. company, yes. broadcaster. Yes. 
How did you make the leap from editor to producer? Okay, so that is an interesting story unto itself because uh, I was hired as a show editor and I, I loved cutting shows. I loved sort of, you know, longer format, 30 minute shows, whatever. Uh, but in 2001, 9-11 happened. Of course, 9-11, terrible. It also decimated the industry. So all the budgets dried up for shows. Uh, so there's basically no shows for me to cut. So what did, uh, what was I tasked to do? I was asked to, to edit promos. At that point, I didn't even know what a promo was because I was a commercial editor. I was a series editor. What's a promo? What's, what's a promo? What a promo is essentially, it's a, it's a commercial for programming. It's a commercial for shows on those channels that the broadcasters owned. I didn't know that. So I was like, okay, cool, let's do it. So I started editing promos completely not knowing, because editing promos is different from cutting commercials. Well, that is, was my question. Yeah, yeah, if they're similar, but they're not. They're, it, they're same, same, but different. Yeah. Again, hard to explain why, because it's a, it's a very long story. I, I would love to have, you know, illustrations and stuff like that. But uh, structurally, they're different. Your call to actions are different. Um, you're very often working with uh, show footage rather than raw footage off camera you're working with show footage so you're watching you know episodes of spongebob squarepants and from those pre-cut episodes you're choosing shots in order to tell a story a 30 second story that attracts people to watch the show that's what a promo is in a nutshell right yeah so at that point i didn't know what a promo was uh producers sort of walked me through it I sort of got the rhythms, I got the formula, um, and there's the very specific promo theory, and I started developing through that. I understood sort of the pacing, the rhythms, et cetera, et cetera, and that's, that's a course unto itself. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought I was doing pretty good as a promo editor. Um, how did I transition into becoming a promo producer? That's interesting because at some point, some producers would come in perhaps not so prepared and I would say, you know, don't worry about it. Just give what you have to me and I'll, I'll fix it. And, uh, and at some times I would end up rewriting the promos, rebuilding the whole ending. So it was, you know, a little more dynamic, different, better, whatever. So some uh, people found out I was doing this um, and a position opened up. They asked me, hey, do you want to be a producer since you're essentially kind of doing this already? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd love to produce as long as I can cut what I'm producing. At that point in history, and we're talking, this is ancient history, producers were writers, editors were editors. Yeah. And between, you know, they never met up. So then I basically became one of the early predators. Predator is producer slash editor. So I have you to blame for having to do two roles but get one paycheck. No, you don't have me to blame. Other people did it before me, but I think uh, where I was working, I was probably the first. Yeah. The first, and I loved it. I loved it having full control sure. over the, the creative, right? Absolutely. Because as you know from my earlier chat, I don't have a lot of patience, and I, I like control. Yeah. Uh, so I did that, and I became a producer, a promo producer in, in essence, and that's how I became a producer. Does that answer the question? Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. So... Uh, I guess you got tired of Toronto, wanted to go off and see the world, you moved to Hong Kong? Um, that's a long story made very short, but I was invited uh, by the creative director of National Geographic Channel Asia, based in Hong Kong, to move to Hong Kong and uh, work as a producer there. 
I said, yeah, why not? Why not? I thought I'd be there for nine months to a year. I ended up staying in Hong Kong for just over seven years. Uh, so I worked at National Geographic Channel as a producer um, for a while and uh, introduced the producer-editor system over there because they didn't have that. Wow, I bet you they loved that. They actually loved it. They loved it uh, because nobody lost any jobs. The producers still yeah. had their jobs as onliners, color correctors, and finishers. Uh, but me as a producer, I just loved being able to handle my own stuff and be able to do you know, perhaps two jobs in parallel. One job I would edit myself, one job I would have the other editor yeah. work on. Yeah. Um, so I worked at Nat Geo for a couple of years. They got bought out by Fox International. So I worked for Fox for a couple of years, uh, launching all their channels, helping launch all their channels, excuse me, it wasn't me alone, of course, helping launch all their channels across Asia. It was sort of the first foray of Fox internationally at that time in, in history. Uh, after that, I worked as an associate creative director for Turner Broadcasting uh, International, still out of Hong Kong, uh, where I worked on brand development for the business development team and on-air promotions. So that, that brings us to the interesting part that I want to be, you know, uh, creative director is a term thrown around quite right. a bit there. What exactly is the role of a creative director, would you say? Uh, creative director is exactly the combination of those two words. They direct creatively. So they may not do things hands-on as a producer slash editor would, or they might. Like myself as, as an associate creative director at Turner, I still got my hands very dirty. Yeah. I still would edit my own stuff, shoot, direct, etc. I would still be sort of a, a one-person band if needed. But sort of on a larger scale, uh, a creative director gives creative direction to the people who need to execute. Um, how, how else can I say this? They would, they basically, you know, nudge creative people in the right direction. To put it very simply. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a senior position, obviously. Yes. Because it seems like it would be one that needs to come with a lot of an experience. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand the brand Absolutely. that you're dealing with. Yes. Yeah. So looking back at your career now, mm -hmm. what would you say to a person, what would you say to a young person who's looking to go into the business? This is going to be a two-part question. Mm-hmm. I would say learn as much as you can while you still can. Uh, when you have the time to learn, learn everything. Learn every piece of software learn every job role if possible just learn as much so you become indispensable that that's my number one that's my number one tip to anyone entering the industry or who wants to enter the industry don't don't pigeonhole yourself right away don't say oh i only want to be a whatever i only want to be an editor oh, right i only want to be a writer that's not, the good old days used to be like yeah, that right i mean it's the, not yeah the the days of one roses and unions it's not quite the same anymore right? yeah uh the more flexible you are the more indispensable you are uh the better you're you're able to handle anything okay second part of the question what would you say to someone who's maybe older or further along a different season in life and looking for a career change mm -hmm. and has maybe gotten into cameras and stuff like that you know how technology has made things more accessible mm -hmm. and they're looking to make a move into this what would your advice be to them i would say it's the same thing i would say it's learn as much as you can you know however much spare time you have 
you know, depending on what you want to do and how serious you want to want to take the profession, learn everything. Learn. Don't be scared of technology, because that's the instant death knell. As soon as you're afraid of technology, that's it's the it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Jason, this has been fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you very much for joining us. That was a sad ending. Maybe I should spend spin it a little. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, what would your advice to them be? Uh, my advice would be more or less the same thing as to a younger person just starting their career is learn as much as you can, read as much as you can, learn about technology, learn about gear, learn about the craft. It's easy to pick up a manual and learn a camera, not that hard, but to understand the craft of what you're doing. So read, you know, great books by great editors, great books by directors, watch a lot of films, write, read a lot of, you know, great authors just absorb as much as you can because when you when you have all that you just become more creative more ideas come to you right? and you're able to step up like you did when an opportunity presents itself to reach outside of your absolutely never never sort of settle in a comfort zone I find it's it's don't be afraid I think maybe that's the number one that's probably the number one tip for everybody is just don't be afraid just do it right because weird things happen in life where you're given crazy opportunities and you either hum and haw and you you, 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 you don't do it and you miss out and then you regret or you just do it. Yeah. And I say just do it. Just awesome. Go for it. Awesome. Well, Jason, on that note, thank you so much thank for you. Uh, coming by and having a chat with us. That's yeah. great. Absolutely. All right. Great stuff there from Jason Chan. I always enjoy chatting with him. He's got a, a great balance of the artistic and the intelligent aspects of, well, the craft of filmmaking and commercial making and promo making. Okay, so in keeping with our format, here is your film term of the day, the martini. Do you know what that means? The martini. You'll hear it on set near the end of the day, coming across the walkie-talkies or people will be whispering it around the craft service table. We're on the martini, we're on the martini. It means the last shot of the day. It means everybody is almost out of there. So that does it for me, and I am out of here. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you tune in to the next episode of How I Got This Gig. <laughs>